0: Welcome to the 43rd episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is Freedom from the Big Brand Unencumbered Growth for an $800 Million Team. It's a conversation with Steve Schwartzbach, founder and managing partner of Icon Wealth Partners. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website diamond-consultants.com and on wealthmanagement.com as well as iTunes and other resources. If you're new to this series, I encourage you to visit diamond-consultants.com/independence101 for the top 5 episodes that will help you get up to speed on the basics of the independent space, plus links to other episodes you may have missed. And if you're listening to the series on the Apple Podcast app, be sure to leave a star rating and review. It serves as a guide to us, as well as to your colleagues in the wealth management space who may be searching for valuable content to tune into. I love hearing from those of you who regularly listen to this series. In our conversations, I find that our listeners have different levels of understanding of the independent space. There are some who have little background knowledge, while others have already embarked upon the due diligence process, and many who are already independent. One thing, though, all of our listeners have in common is the desire to build their knowledge base and further their understanding of a rapidly changing landscape. And I'm grateful to be able to help any way I can. While our monologues tackle topics and trends that advisors need to be aware of, many listeners tell us they especially value the interviews. Hearing from other advisors who made the leap from captive brokerage firm to independence and their candid accounts of what ultimately propelled them to pull the trigger and how the move to independence paid off is what tops the list. My guest in this episode checks all those boxes and then some. Steve Schwartzbach, founder and managing partner of the Houston, Texas-based $800 million RIA firm, Icon Wealth Partners, joined me to share his perspective with you. Having started his advisory career at Smith Barney, Steve and his partners saw the culture change steadily over time after Morgan Stanley purchased the firm. The advisor-friendly, client-centric model they had become accustomed to was disappearing day by day. And so by 2017, driven by the realization that it was becoming harder to serve clients the way they wanted to, they knew it was time to make a change. And so Icon Wealth Partners, a high net worth focused planning firm, was born. It's a great story of how this team came together and forged their path to independence, which Steve tells best. So let's get to it. Steve, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Mindy. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Oh, you bet. Tell us a little bit, if you would, about Icon Wealth Partners.
1: Sure. Icon is a hybrid RIA located in Houston, Texas. We manage just shy of $800 million in client assets. There are three partners and co-founders, Blake Pratt, and Mark McAdams and myself, And we have eight additional investment professionals and support staff that we work with.
0: And what kind of clients do you serve?
1: You know, Mindy, generally we serve high net worth and ultra high net worth clients. We like to describe our clients as smart but busy people. They're corporate executives, uh, partners at law firms, and business owners. And uh, since we've gone independent, I might note that we've had much more success with the business owner prospects and clients than we did previously. So that's, that's been a, a great surprise for us.
0: Yeah. So we can talk more about that as we move through this, but let me ask you, why do you think that is? What is the pitch to these business owners that makes them more receptive now than before?
1: I just think that they're entrepreneurs and they see across the table now, somebody who took an entrepreneurial risk, just like they did when they started their business. So there is a connection, if you will between us and a business owner that didn't exist when we were, you know, embedded in a big global wealth management firm and I think they see that and appreciate it.
0: So, you know, it's an interesting point and again we'll talk more about it, but so many wirehouse advisors who are thinking about independence intrigued by it, but the thing that trips them up often is the the belief that the clients are really reliant on a big brand name, that the name Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch or UBS is important, especially to high net worth and ultra high net worth clients. Yet you're saying the opposite.
1: You know, Mindy, I think our clients you know, given the culture that I personally came from, which was a big corporate culture at Accenture, we were worried that they would feel a separation from a Morgan Stanley or a UBS, which is where we came from. But we were pleasantly surprised that that was not the case. And I think it was two reasons. One is, once we mentioned that their assets were going to be custodied at Fidelity, a household name, a fortress balance sheet very strong during the financial crisis. I think that allayed a lot of their fears. I think they also recognized that the value that they were getting was only partly from the company itself. It was much more about the personal relationships that we had with our clients.
0: Yeah, makes sense. So let's pivot for a second to your background. In an earlier conversation, you told me about how you met your business partner, and it's a great story. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. I was a partner at Accenture, the global consultancy, for 22 years, and we went through a, an IPO in 2001 and therefore had a, a liquidity event that I needed help managing. And I had met Mark uh, McAdams uh, through his father, who was a friend of and mentor of mine. And so we, uh, we started a relationship in 2001. I told him back then, I have more kids than money, but we started the relationship anyway, on relatively modest terms, and I just really I liked the way he dealt with me. I liked the way he interacted with me, and it just was we just clicked from the very beginning.
0: Interesting. So you moved from client to advisor partner. And I know you guys then spent, I think that he was at Morgan Stanley for about 22 years, you had told me. And so tell us a little bit about your partnership at Morgan Stanley, how long you were each there, how the team came together.
1: Sure. Uh, Mark is a, a lifetime wealth advisor. He was with Smith Barney, before the merger with Morgan Stanley, and he's probably got, you know, now 25 years in the business, you know, something like that. Um, I joined him in 2008. It was time for me to leave the corporate world, kind of get off the road. I'd been a, one of these road warriors for a long, long time and was just looking to simplify my lifestyle. So I was talking with him as most clients and advisors do about how do we prepare for the future and what comes next. Well, I was 46 years old and needed something to do. And so our conversations kind of evolved into whether I would be interested in working with him in the wealth management space, knowing how much I appreciated the way he treated me uh, knowing that a lot of his clients were my partners at Accenture, it just seemed like a natural fit, and our conversations, you uh, we went from there.
0: Got it. So how long were you actually at Morgan Stanley? Not that long, right?
1: I was there nine years. So I, ah, I, I okay. teamed up with Mark two days after Bear Stearns was sold for $2 to J.P. Morgan. Interesting. <laughs> so, so my timing wasn't perfect, but uh, it was April of 2008 when Mark and I got together.
0: Got it. And what was the makeup of your business while at Morgan Stanley? Was it similar in terms of the nature of the clients that you served, et cetera?
1: It it was similar. There was a higher concentration of Accenture partners. Mark did a great job bringing Accenture partners into his business. And and as an affinity group, he served us very, very well. And I would say you know, a third, if not half of uh, his business when I started with him was with Accenture Partners. Uh, that has changed a little as we've expanded our business. We've gotten outside of that affinity group more and more, but it's still probably 25% of the business and is an important part of it.
0: Interesting. Okay. So, and then there's your third partner. So you met both of your partners at Morgan Stanley, but one later left for for UBS. So how did the three of you reconnect and then decide to go independent?
1: Yeah. Mark and Blake had known each other for a long time and they are personal friends. So when Blake left to go to UBS, they stayed in touch You know, periodic lunches, uh, just two friends uh, staying connected. Over time, I think those conversations started to evolve into what was going on in our industry, what was going on in our individual firms. And at some point, the conversations turned to, you know, should we be considering teaming together and going independent? Uh, Once Mark saw that Blake was serious about that, they invited me into the conversations. And so the three of us started uh, thinking through that opportunity As a trio.
0: Got it. Let's circle back then to the genesis for forming Icon Wealth and some of the things that sort of drove you to it. So, what were some of the drivers, the pushes to leave Morgan Stanley and the pulls toward independence? Were there certain changes you had seen? You know, walk us through some of the thinking.
1: Sure. I I think there were two things, Mindy, that really opened our eyes and drove us to look at this seriously. One is that Morgan Stanley's management style was materially different than the culture that we had grown up in in Smith Barney. It was a a little more centralized, a little bit more Wall Street or New York driven, less local decision making and authority. Uh, So we noticed that very early on in the combination of Morgan Stanley and Smith Barney. The other is we didn't know what we didn't know. We had to be educated on what the independent model actually looked like. We did a very quick and dirty look into a high t- a high tower option. Oh, probably back in two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, not not long after Morgan Stanley uh, came uh, merged with uh, Smith Barney, and at the time the platform did not consider alternative investments. That's a third of our business. That's a third of our book. And so we didn't go much further. The, the business model just had not matured enough.
0: The Meaning the Hightower or you felt the independent model just hadn't matured enough?
1: It know. was really the independent space. Um, Hightower, we thought, was pushing the envelope and changing the game, if you will, back then, Um, but without the ability to bring our clients' alternative assets over. We knew it would be a non-starter with our clients, so we did not pursue it at that time very vigorously.
0: You know, that's actually an interesting point because a lot of the guests I've had on this show have said that, that... They began to look or at least get curious about the independent space, in some cases a decade ago. And what they found were capabilities that may not have been quite as turnkey, easily accessible or robust enough. And fast forward a decade or eight years later, and suddenly they see a whole sort of filled out set of possibilities of ways to support an independent practice. And it sounds like you found the same.
1: We absolutely did.
0: Yeah. So, how did the changes that you began to see at Morgan Stanley affect your ability to serve your clients?
1: Quite frankly, we we felt like we were being told no more often than yes. And, you know, we understand that it's a big company, that there was a need to manage to the lowest common denominator to protect the firm and the franchise. But that was frustrating to two partners who are both, you know, solid business folks wanted to serve our clients, uh, but were consistently hit with some barriers or impediments that prevented us from doing so. And we didn't think we were doing anything unusual. We just saw a little erosion of the kinds of conversations we could have with the clients, the kinds of products that we were making available to them. Uh, There was a little bit of the move towards a proprietary product within the Morgan Stanley franchise that we were a little uncomfortable with. Um, so we just started to see over time this erosion of what we thought was our commitment to open architecture and the way that we had, we'd had always served our clients.
0: Yeah. You know, I read an interesting quote this morning by a breakaway group that left Merrill Lynch last year, managing about $5 billion in assets. And they were quoted as saying that they had no idea what the business was capable of until they went independent. So what have been some of the things that You've been able to do, or things you've seen as an independent that you couldn't do or uh, weren't capable of doing at Morgan Stanley?
1: You know, the thing that we've learned as an independent business is, and this sounds a little counterintuitive, that the choices are now truly unlimited. In fact, it's one of the challenges that I think of the independent model, of the independent space, is you've got to manage the choices. Because they they really are abundant. What we have found that our clients really appreciate is that that we are free to look for products and services outside of the universe that we used to operating in. We used to operate in, and I think a good example of that is securities based lending. A lot of our clients were using the rate arbitrage and the leverage of their personal assets to do things like private real estate investing or to buy mineral interests in oil wells. Uh, in the Eagleford Shale. And so our clients adopted the securities-based lending product and and capability. When we went independent, we had more choices of where we could source that product. So at Morgan Stanley, it was you can have any color you want as long as it's black, right? We used their product, which was a good and solid product. But in the independent model, you know, Fidelity offers the product to us. Goldman Sachs offers the product to us. And we're working with a smaller niche or focused group. And what we can do is we can play them off of each other. We can have them compete for our business, which our clients appreciate, that they know that, that we're fighting for them, if you will.
0: Yeah, well, what you're talking about is going from being a sell-side person to becoming a buy-side advocate for your clients, creating competition for price and service. And while securities-based lending is one example, I imagine it also happens in the world of trust, in the world of alternative investments, investment banking capabilities, structured products, any form of lending product. Correct.
1: All of the above, and I think alternatives is a great example of that. When you work at a big global company where there are seventeen thousand advisors, if you are offered an alternative investment to bring to your clients, and you say no, that's fine because there's you know sixteen thousand other people who may say yes. In our environment, we have much better access to smaller, boutique, nichier alternative investments. And we use iCapital, which uh, I can't say enough about uh, what they've got. They're a technology-enabled business that has just added a lot of efficiency to alternative investing. And we have seen great feedback and, and great results from going to the iCapital platform for alternative investments.
0: Yeah. How aware were you of this, even as you were going through the due diligence process when you were still at Morgan, how aware were you or how much did the ability to shop the street for all of these things and create this competition for price and service to offer more to your clients? How obvious or aware aware or clear were you on that ability or did it take actually making the leap until you really were able to appreciate the importance of it?
1: It really didn't, the light bulb didn't come on until after we moved. When we were going through our due diligence, it was all about replacing what we had with the same or better types of services. And so we were checking boxes, you know, do they have structured notes? Yes. Do they have municipal bonds? You know, all the things that we needed to serve our clients, we were making sure that we were going to be able to offer that in the new environment. We didn't truly appreciate that we would be able to hit people against each other to get better pricing, to get better service and pass that on to our clients. It is something that we fully appreciated after we made the change.
0: So how do you or do you pitch that to a prospect. You said when we started that you've been pleasantly surprised by the number of new high net worth and ultra high net worth clients you've brought on since going independent. And we're surprised by stepping away from the powerful big brand name, you've actually been growing faster or better. So is the notion, the ability to shop the street and create competition for things like securities-based lending alternatives or just about anything else, is that part of your pitch now to prospects?
1: It definitely is. And the pitch is, uh, is not quite that direct, but we definitely convey to our prospects that we are unencumbered from being able to bring the best of investment products and services to them. We talk a little bit about some of the nuances, the restrictions. We talk a little bit about the pay-to-play notion that does or does not exist on Wall Street, and I think that our clients understand that, and, and I think that they can identify with us as business owners. When we say that we're going to do everything we can to bring the best of the best to them, I think they believe it.
0: Yeah, so, in your exploration process, did you ever think about looking at another wirehouse, like looking at UBS or Merrill Lynch or a regional firm or any other employee based model, or you just had your sights set on independence?
1: Yeah, we did not think long and hard about going to another wirehouse. Mark and I had a lot of very deep, soul-searching conversations about what should we do with the business. And remember, he is the one who originated this business. I joined him. So he's the architect of of what we've got. And I hope he would say that I've added some value to the team. But, you know, I, I had to be very sensitive to Mark was the creator of this. But we realized very quickly that our clients would not appreciate that we were taking a check. Monetizing the business, I think they are all invested in our personal success, but they understood that just going to another wirehouse really meant that you know Mark and Steve were going to be taking a big check, and the other is we just didn't feel like it was any different. The Merrill, UBS, Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, you know, you name it they do generally the same things and so we didn't feel like it would be a differentiated enough story for our clients to understand and appreciate
0: yeah that is the refrain we hear from most it is it's went from a world where wirehouse advisors if they moved only went from one wirehouse to another that has become much more the exception than the rule so let me backtrack a second Ultimately, in the choice to go independent, you chose to leverage Dynasty Financial Partners. So you are part of the Dynasty Financial Partners network. Why Dynasty versus the choice of other service providers? And why Dynasty versus the choice of just going it alone, You know, going to the custodians and pulling it all together yourself?
1: Yeah, great question. We did a lot of due diligence and quite honestly, we took our time doing it. We ultimately chose Dynasty for two reasons. One is the cultural fit was very tight, a lot of their principles came from the same Smith-Barney culture that we came from, which we viewed as very uh, client and advisor centric. And so we didn't have to explain to them what our view of advisor and client centric meant because they grew up in in that same culture. So very quickly, we were able to see that the cultural fit would be very tight. The other, quite honestly, is that they don't buy uh, any of your business. They don't have equity in your business. And the, the three co-founders said, if we're going to make this change, if we're going to make this leap, we want to have as much control of our own destiny as possible. And that meant that we would keep all the equity in the, in the business among the partners.
0: Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay, so let's circle back to the clients for a second. We talked a little bit about how leaving behind the big brand name, um, how that landed on clients and how pleasantly surprised you were by their actually embracing your own entrepreneurial spirit. But did all of your clients follow you?
1: Oh, we had great success in that area. We had, I want to say, Mindy, don't quote me on this. Ninety-two uh, percent or so of our clients came with us, and about ninety-five percent of the assets. Uh, honestly, we were humbled by the trust and loyalty that our clients demonstrated to us when you know when, when we gave them the news that that we were leaving. It was a very rewarding part of our whole experience.
0: And what do you think was the most compelling part of your message to them? So when you left Morgan and wound up on the other side and you called to say, hey, I'm no longer at Morgan, I am now the principal or a principal of Icon Wealth Partners, what was the message? What did it sound like and what do you think the most compelling thing to them was?
1: There were two things I think that helped our clients understand The choices that they had in terms of whether they were going to stay uh, at the old firm or join us in the the new firm. The first was that, and this doesn't sound great, but they really didn't have a choice. We had made the move. We had resigned from Morgan Stanley. So their choice was to move with us or to get a brand new advisor relationship with somebody they didn't know at our former firm. The other is uh, once they understood the safety of the custody of their assets, and I would argue that it's a safer situation in the independent model than in the captive model, I think they really understood that their assets were going to be safe. And and quite honestly, I thought, I think they heard the enthusiasm in our voices. I think they, they heard that we were very excited about making this move, that we were kind of taking a chance on ourselves. And I think that meant something to them as well.
0: And did you tell them that you expected to be able to serve them better and with more freedom? Was that part of the pitch? Yeah.
1: Our motto to our clients was same or better. And we used that standard when we were doing our evaluation for literally every part of the new business. If we couldn't answer the question, is this the same or better for a client? We would go back to Dynasty and say, what do we do to make this better? What do we have to do to fill this gap? Because we wanted as tight a coverage of products and services in the new model as we had in the in the old model and so that i think that that mantra that model of, of same or better and we we applied that in terms of product choice in terms of pricing in terms of uh, access all of the above i think that meant something to our clients
0: yeah and i absolutely agree with that i always say the very first the minimum bar is to do no harm But the real threshold should be same or better, and in most cases, no reason not better, and that's a good thing. That's a great thing. So many prospective independent advisors, so advisors that are currently sitting at captive employee-based brokerage firms often believe they need to be serial entrepreneurs in order to make a successful leap to business ownership. So in other words, they're intrigued by the freedom and the control that independence offers. They're intrigued by watching some of their billion-dollar colleagues make the leap and some of the things they're saying about their newfound enthusiasm and passion for the business. But they don't necessarily believe that they were born with entrepreneurial DNA. So I would ask you, how entrepreneurial at the core would you say you and your partners were?
1: Yeah, I think that we were entrepreneurial within the context of a wealth management business. And what I mean by that is we were very willing and interested in, you know, pushing the envelope in terms of exploring new product areas and, and looking at things that might not be as mainstream. So we were entrepreneurial in, in that regard. I think it is a myth that we in the independent space need to debunk that you have to be some Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos level entrepreneur to make this successful because that's just not the case. You do have to be willing to take a risk. You have to be entrepreneurial enough to know that there's going to be some unknown or unknowable challenges that you're going to have to manage. But one of the concepts that we've been talking about with advisors who are interested in joining us is this notion of safe passage. There is lots of data and evidence and anecdotes about Billion dollar teams leaving the safety of the cocoon of a of a big warehouse and going independent, and there are there are providers like Dynasty, like Fidelity, uh, that help enable that. So this concept of safe passage, moving your book from one place to another, is something that I think we as an industry could do a better job communicating and educating.
0: I make that my mantra. That's my conversation. The notion of safe passage with every advisor. And it's not about selling them on making a move. It's just helping them to understand that clients have the right to be served by an advisor who is able to offer them the best in class of everything without being encumbered by the agenda of a big brokerage firm. And that's not to say that being at a big brokerage firm is wrong, because if an advisor believes that the best way to service a client is at a big firm, Then so be it, that's wonderful. But if an advisor believes that they can serve clients better elsewhere, as an independent, for example, they should be free to do so. And I agree that the industry needs to do a better job of explaining that. a little bit about your longer range plans for the business, Steve. What comes next for ICON?
1: Yeah, it's really to be determined. It's going to unfold and evolve. I I think today the three founders would say our ultimate vision is to create a heritage firm that will outlive all of us, can be passed on to the next generation of advisor owners of, of ICON Wealth Partners. So we talk in terms of long-range view of what Icon Wealth Partners can become. You know, we are committed to growing both organically and inorganically. When we made the investment in the independent model, we all came out of pocket to do so. And our view was, you're at an inflection point when you do that. You can either... Go with an approach that is a better way to serve your clients without those growth aspirations, and you'll probably be more content and happy just because you have more freedom to serve the clients the way you want to. Or you can do that and invite other advisors who are like-minded to join you in that endeavor. And we took that route. We, we thought if it's good enough for us, it's going to be good enough for other people and that they would be attracted to the independent business model.
0: Yeah. So I want to back up to something you just said. We, My partners and I were out of pocket to build this. That concept is anathema to many in a world where there are firms, other wirehouses, regional firms, boutique firms, firms like First Republic and Rockefeller and RBC that are paying high watermark deals to incent advisor movement. So how did you justify out of pocket to build an independent firm when there was much money to be gotten in a recruiting deal?
1: It's really about true independence or just independence. When you take money and support from somebody, you you have just accepted them as a partner. And that's okay. Some people are, are very comfortable with that. But like I had said earlier, you know, we wanted to control our own destiny as much as we possibly could. And so you know, we did go out of pocket. Um, the economics, as you well know, and have been a huge advocate in, in spreading this, is that the economics in this model are better for everybody involved. And so we didn't think that the upfront investment was overly rich for what we thought the economic rewards could potentially be.
0: Yeah, love it. And how about your succession plans for you and your partners?
1: Yeah, so we've got a couple of thoughts on that. We are interested in bringing on advisors at all stages of their career, late, mid, and early. And part of that is we feel like we'll have a better succession model in the independent space than what the big uh, Wall Street firms you know, currently offer. We've also talked about you know, at the right time and with the right partner, a strategic combination. Don't know exactly what that would look like, but just like any other M&A, you can acquire your way into the talent that's needed to carry the, the firm forward, and, and that is certainly on the table for us.
0: So in that case you're talking about the potential to either recruit or acquire your successor. But how about any thoughts about the end game to monetize your equity in the business, the the thought someday of selling the business. Was that was that end game part of your decision to go independent?
1: Monetizing the business is I think something that's always on on everybody's minds. It's just a matter of how you you choose to do it. We knew that the, the path that we chose, any monetization event would be many years down the road. And so we were not looking for uh, to turn a quick buck or anything like that. We think size matters uh, in this space. And so we have aspirations to, to grow our assets into the billions. And if the opportunity to monetize when we reach that scale is there, you know, we will certainly consider it. But it's not, it's not a predetermined end game where, you know, we're looking for the highest multiple as soon as we can get it. We want this to be a legacy business.
0: Yeah, I love it. And the truth of the matter is that that is the right way to build it. To build a business and actually being partnered with Dynasty gives you the best chance of doing so, to build a business that is that will have scale and real enterprise value. And what we are seeing today is that the M&A market for RIA firms that are built the right way with scale, with real value in mind – the market is just red hot. Every day we're reading about another multi-billion dollar firm that is being sold or merged for top dollars. So that's exciting. Let me ask you one last question. With two years hindsight or a little more than two years hindsight since breaking from Morgan Stanley, if you and your partners had to do it all over again, are there any mistakes you made or anything you might've done differently?
1: Yes, there were mistakes that that were made, but that's going to stay between us. No, I'm I'm just teasing. You know, it's cliche, and we were told this that once we went independent, we will have wished that we had done it sooner, and and that is certainly true. It is such an energizing move out of a warehouse and into the independent model, where you know you have all the responsibility of success or failure. It's so energizing that I feel like I I lost out on some of the fun of that by waiting until we did. But the mistakes that we made, the things that we learned, I think were all typical of advisors and and sizable businesses moving from a Wall Street firm to an independent model. And, uh, you know, none of them were fatal, obviously.
0: Yeah, it's so funny, Steve, I have to tell you, I asked that question with hindsight. Are there any things you wish you would have done differently? And 100% Of the breakaways that I have interviewed, 100% of them said the number one mistake was not having done it sooner. And so what a ringing endorsement. It has been an absolute delight to talk with you. Your story is interesting and exciting. I love the fact that you went from client to advisor to business owner. It sounds like you guys are just beginning in the early innings of building something really spectacular, and I'm excited for you. And I can't wait to continue the conversation at some point and hear more.
1: Fantastic, Mindy. Thanks again for having me.
0: Steve Schwartzbach said it best. As independents, we are unencumbered and able to bring our clients best-in-class products and services combined with the safety and power of Fidelity's Fortress balance sheet. And contrary to popular belief, jettisoning the Morgan Stanley brand has actually enabled this team to grow faster and better. In our next episode, I'll be speaking with Andrew Daniels, Managing Principal of Business Development at Commonwealth Financial Network. Back in 1979, founder Joe Deitch had a vision to build a broker-dealer firm which focused on fostering a creative environment for advisors, along with some of the guardrails of the wirehouse world they came from. Andrew will discuss why the Commonwealth independent broker-dealer model is right for so many advisors looking at independence, and how some 40 years later, Commonwealth continues to thrive in what's become a crowded and competitive space. So I hope you'll join us. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email perspectives for advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles, feel free to email or call me. If you have specific questions, I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note, that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank WealthManagement.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.